Well, we are in 1 Timothy 3. We're actually straddling the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 this morning. The title is The Church in the World. We're in this series called Roots of a Healthy Church, where we're effectively going underground, as it were, in looking at the church. We love the idea of the fruit. We want all of the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, all of those things. We want that stuff, and we want to experience that as a body of Christ. But you don't get it by pursuing the fruit. You go in and you make sure the roots are healthy. And so what Paul is doing in this letter is sort of helping us to go underground a little bit and see how we can have healthy roots in order that we might experience that fruit. Last week in our time together, we sort of kicked it off with this quote by John Maxwell. He's a leadership author and speaker. And he famously said, everything rises and falls on leadership. <clears throat> we learned last week how in his grace, God has provided to the church gifted people to lead in the body of Christ in order that the church might experience greater degrees of spiritual health and that they might continue to be a beacon of light in a dark world and a voice of truth in a very confused world. And what I argued last week was that the health of a church depends largely on the quality, faithfulness, and teaching of its ordained ministers. Last week, we focused on leadership, specifically those who are called and qualified to lead in the church. This week, we're going to continue in some way that theme of leadership just from a different angle, more broadly speaking. To get us started, I'll start with another John Maxwell quote, and he defines leadership in this way. A leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. It's a really easy limerick there. A leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. In other words, a leader needs to have a vision. They need to know where they are going, and they need to know how to get there. But even that isn't enough to be a leader, because a leader must also possess a second mark, which is the courage and the conviction to actually get up off of their butts and pursue that vision that they see. If they don't, then they're just dreamers. So they got to actually go the way. But even that isn't enough to be a leader, because a leader isn't a leader until they inspire others to know the way and go the way that they are going. Leaders are people who communicate through words and personal actions, where to go and how to get there. Of course, assumed in that definition is this understanding that a leader knows who they, they are, who God has called them to be. They're comfortable in their own skin and secure in their relationship with Christ, and they are honest about their weaknesses and humble in their strengths. I bring all this up today because we're going to see in the text Paul give a leadership vision for the church. And he does this by reminding them who they are, what their purpose in the world is, what brings them together, and then what obstacles stand in their way. So based on that, the point I want to make today is this. The church ought to know who they are as they live out their purpose in the world. There's three sections we're going to look at each of these three sections has three kind of sub-points in it. And in the first two points, Paul essentially outlines the nature 
of the church and the church's purpose, which we all get to participate in individually. And in the third point, he shows them what happens when you forget that, what the nature of the church is and what its purpose is. So with that said, let's cover the first point which is the church and its mission. We're going to look at just verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy 3. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul starts by telling Timothy, this is why I'm writing the letter to you. I am writing these things to you, Timothy, so that you might know how one ought to behave in the church. Remember, Timothy is a, a young pastor. He's had a lot of ministry experience, but he was placed in this church by Paul. He was nominated by the elders of this church who were already there. And we've already talked about the fact that there were people who had positioned themselves in the church to be leaders, though they didn't really have the genuine faith, and they were teaching false things, leading people astray. Timothy was there to set them straight, and to lead, in, the, in the kindest of ways to set them straight, and to lead the church back to health and faithful gospel ministry because they had gotten off track because of these individuals. Timothy knew who he was when he got there. He knew what he was supposed to do, and he knew why he was supposed to do it. But what can happen to leaders in these kinds of situations, when they start, or from when they start to when they're actually in it, over time, and I, I guess I speak from personal experience and from the experience of others, is that they become distracted, leaders become distracted by putting out fires and trying to resolve endless conflicts that they experience mission drift or they just die out. And friends, there's not a better tactic that the enemy uses than to get leaders of the church and even the whole church itself distracted with endless debates and arguing over opinions and personal preferences. What happens is you forget where you started from. <laughs> what even got you in this in the first place? You forget all of those things. You forget who you are, where you're going, and how to get there. And Paul knows this all too well. He knows that as Timothy is working at cultivating health in an unhealthy church and having conversation after conversation after conversation over all of these debates that were happening in this church, Paul knows that he's going to need to be reminded over and over and over and over again what the church is, what its mission is, what the truth is, what the gospel is, in order that he might not experience mission drift or death in ministry. The purpose of the church isn't to make everyone happy. It isn't to solve everyone's problem. It isn't to fulfill everyone's personal preferences. It is to experience the presence of God in our midst and uphold the truth within a world of lies. At least that's what Paul's going to 
bring out today. And so in order to do this, what Paul does is he describes what the church is in three ways, just in those couple of verses, showing who they are and what the mission is. First, notice there in the text, he says that the church is the household of God. Coming off last week, if you were here, he talked about how elders and deacons, one of the qualities that they must possess, these are people who lead in the church, is that they need to be people who manage their household well. In other words, if their house is in chaos, they probably shouldn't lead in God's house because God's house should not be marked by chaos, but by love and peace and health. And so Paul just kind of continues that here to say that the church, it's like a household, like a family, not, not merely a family of people who are all related to each other, but people who share the same faith. So they are a household. But more importantly, what makes the church, the household of God, is that God is there. He's dwelling among them. This is the hope and the promise that we have in the gospel. Like the tabernacle, like the temple was to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, the church has become the dwelling place of God. And because God dwells among us, we are required, expected to live and love one another a certain way. This is what Paul has in mind. He's saying, this is what the church is. You are the household of God. It's not a social club. It's not a networking group. It is not a philanthropic enterprise. The church is the household of God, a place where God's people gather to meet with God as they meet with each other, which he then further elaborates in the second description. He says that they're the, church, they're the household of God, which is the church of the living God. This, of course, was to distinguish the church from any other religious organization in their day. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that in the city of Ephesus, there was known to be worshipped at least 50 different deities or idols or gods or religious faiths. So not only is the church not a social club, it's a family of faith, it's also a very specific faith. It is the church of the living God, the one true God, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who spoke and brought everything into existence and called it good, the God who revealed himself to the people of Israel and spoke to them through their prophets. He is the God who came into the world in the person of Christ, took on flesh and lived among us and died in our place. But then he rose again. He is a living God. He is a living Savior. And when he ascended back into heaven, he left his spirit to live among his people. Those people who gather as the church in local congregations all over the world and throughout time, as he brings people into the light of salvation through faith in the gospel, we are the living church because we have a living God as opposed to the dead and false gods that are worshiped all around us today. We're certainly worshiped in their day, but even today, there is false worship happening all around us. But those two descriptions lend themselves to a third, which is that because the church is the household of God, the household of the living God, the church is also then a pillar 
and buttress of the truth. A pillar, of course, is a piece of architecture that holds up and supports parts of a building. <coughs> In ancient Ephesus, there was the Temple of Diana, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And historians talk about how it had over, there's a, a rendition of it, had over 100 pillars and several buttresses that supported its massive size. What is a buttress? Basically, these beams are like buttresses. They hold up the roof and support the structure above us. And so what Paul is doing is he's pointing to that building, but using it as a metaphor to them to say, you, the church, you're kind of like those pillars and you're like those buttresses that support something. What is it that they're supporting? Truth, the truth of the gospel in the midst of a world of lies. And let me just say this, that is a critical work. Without the church fulfilling her mission and her purpose in the world, Paul is saying truth is lost. It's like light that's hidden under a basket that cannot be seen. Let me also say that this is an enduring work. This is not something that you do just for a little bit and then you're kind of done. You're constantly representing truth. For example, I'll just use these beams again. I don't know when this building was made, sometime in the 60s or something. But for decades, these beams have been right there, just holding up this structure. All the storms that have come through this area, all the heat waves and all of the cold and what, all the winds, everything, and yet those beams have been holding strong for decades. That's the image that Paul is talking about, is that as the church you hold up the truth in the midst of a chaotic and constantly changing culture that is always coming up with new lies, new deceptions, new falsehoods that want to lead the church astray and convolute the gospel. The church is there to support and lift up and hold up high, enduring through all of those things. That's the image. So the first thing Paul reminds Timothy of amidst all of the chaos in ministry and life and something that we need to go back and remind ourselves of is that you are a part of the church, the household of God, the living God, and that you support and hold up the truth. And we do that together. But then he moves to the second reminder in verse 16. Because after all, what is the truth that we are holding up? And he tells him exactly what it is in the next verse. He says in verse 16, and, and this point is the church and its confession. <coughs> he writes, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. After Paul, or yeah, Paul reminds Timothy of what the church is. And what its mission in the world is, which is to hold up the truth, he now says what that truth is that they need to hold up. And he effectively does it through reciting what would probably be commonly known as an ancient creed at this time. And, and he starts, though, by saying, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, I think when we think mystery, we think of something that we're trying to figure out. But in their case, 
what Paul is saying is the mystery that was once hidden is now revealed in the gospel and in Christ, which you guys already know and believe. And so it's not a mystery in that same sense. He's saying that the mystery is already resolved. When Christ came into the world, lived in our place, or lived among us, and then died in our place. That is the mystery, and it is great indeed that it results in godliness when you put your faith in Christ. How sinners can be made right with God again and how people can discover their purpose in the world. The, the answer that we often come up with is self-righteousness or moralism or any other number of things, government, social status, personal accomplishments. The answer is not any of those things. It's in recognizing that God made you and he made you to have a relationship with him, but sin came into the world and separated us from God. And our only hope in this life is that God would send us a savior. And he sent us that savior in the person of Christ. And the work that he accomplished for us on the cross bridges that gap that once existed or that exists because of sin. And you can be made right with God again, not through works of your own, but through faith in his works done in your place. Uh, and I'm going to be honest, even that still has a measure of mis mystery to it. You mean all I need to do is surrender and then the Lord transforms my life? Like there's nothing really on my end that makes me conformed to the image of Jesus. It's his work in me. And in one sense, it's kind of upside down living. What Jesus talked about, if you want to save your life, then you lose it. If you want to lose your life, then try and hold on to it. It's that sort of thing that is a mystery to us still. How does all of that work? It's what we're figuring out as we continue to walk with the Lord. But this we know is that Jesus surrendered his life to death, and in the end, he received glory. That's kind of what this creed is bringing out. But let's look at it a little closer. What is he saying about this truth that we hold up? It's sort of broken up into three parts. The first thing he says is this, Jesus was manifested in the flesh and then vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, there was a teaching in their day that all flesh and matter is inherently evil. This was being taught by the Gnostics and many others. But what he's saying here through this creed is that, no, Jesus doesn't call all flesh evil. He's come to redeem that as he came to took, take on flesh. And this fact was proven when he was vindicated in the Spirit. Certainly, it's a reference to his baptism when the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. This is a truth that we need to hold on to, that Jesus really became a human being, the eternal Son of God, and that, that he was vindicated through the Spirit. But then he goes on to say that Jesus was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. At his birth, Jesus was announced by angels when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Afterward, angels came and ministered to him. And at his grave, angels announced to the women that he was not there but had risen. He was seen by angels. But it wasn't just these angels that preached about Jesus. But after the resurrection, his disciples also preached the gospel to all the nations. Because remember, we looked at a few weeks ago, the gospel is available to all kinds 
of people, every tribe and tongue and nation. And then Paul goes on then to write, he was believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Not only was the gospel preached, but the gospel has been believed by all people all over the world. They've put their faith in Jesus. They're still putting their faith in Jesus. And what started as a ministry of suffering for Jesus ended in glory. And that's sort of the point that Paul is making, that as the church continues to proclaim and confess the truth of the gospel, even in the face of hardship and suffering, it's all going to be worth it in the end because glory is in the end. Not only do we need to remember who we are and what our purpose is, we need to remember what our message is, what the truth is that we are actually holding up that are essential to the faith. Verse 16 is that early Christian creed. Paul's saying, this is the truth that we need to hold on to and proclaim. Everything else is just opinions or preferences, things that we can agree to disagree on. As time went on, though, and I'm sort of coming out of uh, the letter here, as time went on, years later after Paul would write this letter, uh, the church would always face issues. Today, right now, there are all kinds of false teachings that want to come into the church in order to distract and distort the gospel. In the first few centuries of <coughs> the church, there were all kinds of heresies going around. Different councils were formed in order to establish what true Christian doctrine was. And one of those early councils came up with this early Christian creed that we know as the Apostles' Creed. In fact, the song that we were singing earlier was sort of based on the Apostles' Creed. And, and what would happen is that a new convert would recite this creed in order to show that this is, they're believing in true Christian doctrine. And just for the sake of the topic, I just felt like I would read it. This is what the Apostles' Creed says. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic or universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. It's a really familiar creed for probably many Christians. It's simple, it's beautiful, it's straightforward, but you can tell if you look at it that there were clear errors that this creed was written to correct. I mean, the first thing is obvious. It's got a Trinitarian focus, Father, Son, and Spirit. And these three are mentioned together. Second is the strong emphasis on the deity and the humanity of Jesus. As there were some at that time who were arguing that Jesus wasn't fully God, and there were some that were arguing that he wasn't fully man. And so this creed establishes them both as essential confessions. We believe in Father, Son, and Spirit. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And I bring this up to show that the church has always been confessional, and the church has always had to react to false teachings in their day. And the way that we do that is not by constantly going after every single error, 
but by knowing the truth and, that, and standing on that. The, the world is always going to be inventing things, and we don't have time to distract ourselves with all of the false teachings out there. Our focus is to know the truth, remember the truth, believe the truth, proclaim the truth, and things will sort of settle themselves, which is sort of where Paul goes next in the last section, in a section I'm calling the church and its distraction. Let's just read the first five verses of chapter four. He writes, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So remember the first two sections, Paul's reminding Timothy of what the church is that he and all true believers belong to that we belong to the household of God, the church of the living God. We have this mission and purpose in the world, which is to hold up the truth of the gospel in the midst of a dark and confused world. He reminds us of what our true confession is as believers. And we know now why he is doing all of those things, because there's going to be people in the latter days who will try and undermine that work. There are people, actually there's spiritual forces that will try to distract, distort, diminish the work of the gospel through the church. And he, he reminds them here, this is not a political action. This is not social. This is not merely relational issues. Behind all of this is a spiritual problem. He says there, in the latter times, that is the time period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, in the age we're living in now. The people who do this are being led astray by deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Certainly, he says, they've given over themselves, right? They've seared their own consciences every time that in their hearts they knew the right thing to do but didn't do it. They sort of continued to give in to sin, and they gave themselves over to darkness and deceitfulness and foolishness, and then evil spirits led them to believe lies. And then they then go and promote those lies to others. But he's saying this is a spiritual battle that comes in the form of relationships in the church. If you turn to the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul, he had already warned the church in chapter 20. He had a conversation with the elders in Ephesus. Sometime around the time that Timothy was showing up there, he told them he was going to leave the church and move on in his, in his missionary journeys. And he encourages them, but he also warns them. This is what he tells them in verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And he's not talking about literal wolves. He's talking about people and using them as a metaphor. And from among your own selves 
will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be alert. Now, I'm, I'm curious I, whether Paul knew exactly who these individuals were, these wolves, or in general, maybe he just knew that wolves in the church like to show their teeth during leadership transitions. That it's kind of beside the point. What, what matters is that he warned them. He knew it was going to happen, and sadly it came true. Now here he's writing this letter to Timothy, and he addresses the wolves that are among them and the lies that they are telling. He mentions two of them in the text that we're looking at in chapter 4. He says they restrict people from, or they basically are promoting abstinence, abstinence from marriage and abstinence from certain foods. In other words, this is what they're saying. Don't marry and don't eat, and then you will be godly people like us. And if you do eat those things, then you won't be godly people like us. But notice that Paul exposes the lies, and he gives the church a corrective biblical response. He writes, listen, God created marriage and called it good. God made food for you to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving by those who know the truth. For again, God made everything good, and it should not be rejected. Now, in one sense, if we're being honest, we might look at this and think, what's the big deal? After all, didn't Paul say singleness could be a path toward greater devotion to God? And in one sense, that's true. Um, And sometimes, some people need to deny themselves of certain privileges of food or drink in order to maintain godliness in their lives. We're not talking about that. What's happening here is that they were teaching people, normal people in the church, that if you want to get closer to God, then you need to deny yourself of these basic things. Or worse, if you do those things, then you're probably not a Christian. That's what they're saying. Friends, that's legalism, that's moralism, that's self-righteous religion. The truth is, both of those things kind of give us a feeling of like, wow, this is cool. I, I can do something for God. And wouldn't he love that? It, it pulls on our heartstrings to, of self-righteousness, but they're false. And Paul exposes them. But here's sort of three tests that we can give to see if something is actually false. The first thing is a false teaching draws people away from God. By teaching people that they could actually get closer to God through denying themselves of the things that God made for their enjoyment was actually distancing themselves from God because now they're not leaning on God's grace but on their own works and merits. The gospel tells us that godliness is gained through faith in what Jesus did for us not in what we deny of ourselves. Godliness cannot be achieved through abstinence or asceticism, but only through faith in Jesus. The second thing, false teachings draw believers away from one another. Whenever people elevate things to th- that are third-tier issues, things that you can have an opinion on, to first-tier issues, I don't know if you're a Christian if you do that thing, if you go to that place, then what happens is they're dividing believers against one another, dividing the household of God, the living God who is not divided. And yet people do that. They elevate personal opinions, preferences, 
to first-tier issues and then divide the church over the, those things, and that is unhealthy. Third, false teachings separate believers from evangelizing the world. While these Christians in Ephesus were arguing over whether to marry or not eat certain foods, they were forgetting their purpose in the world, which was not to fight inside about dumb things, but instead to remember that there's a lot of people out there who have not heard the truth and are right now on a path toward hell if they do not hear the truth of the gospel and believe in it. And it is our responsibility to do that, not to fight over preferences or opinions. And that's what Paul is saying. It separates you from the world. And wouldn't the enemy love that more than anything else? To get us fighting over just tertiary things when the world is lost and needs the light. So in closing, sort of the point I've tried to argue throughout this is that the church ought to know, needs to know who they are as they live out their purpose in the world. And the reason for this is so that we can all enjoy the blessings of healthy relationships in the body of Christ, the household of God. But it's also because we are called to an eternal work to be the light in this dark place. But the other reason why we need to know this is so that we don't forget, like lose our way. There's the potential for mission drift all over the place. And so we need to remind ourselves over and over and over again who we are, where we're going, and what truth is that we need to hold up. The enemy wants to get us to believe lies, to get us off mission with endless debates and relational conflict. But a healthy church, again, knows who they are, and they live their purpose in the world. Why don't we pray, and then we'll have time of communion together. God, we come before you, and God, let's, we just probably should start with a confession and an acknowledgement that, that there are many times, there's a t- temptation in all of us to elevate our personal preferences to the level of objective gospel truth that saves people. And God, we confess that that happens at times. And, and Lord, we want to, in this moment, repent of those things in order that, as your word says, times of refreshing may come from your presence. God, we pray that our church and all the churches in Canby, Lord, we just specifically pray for, would be a beacon of light as they continue to hold fast to the truth of the gospel in the midst of a dark and confused world. Thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of that, you constantly call us back and remind us of our identity, of who we are, and our purpose in the world. And we need these reminders because we're so forgetful. So thank, thank you that we have this opportunity as a church to gather week in and week out and to remember the gospel through communion every single week as we remember Christ and what he did for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.